You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Psalm 133 is a psalm which has a central theme of unity and what unity is like and really, in a sense, how precious, how beautiful, how wonderful unity is when it is found amongst God's people. Let's read the entire psalm together and then we'll think about this concept of unity as found inside of this psalm. It says in verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like, verse 3, the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, there are various brothers that are pictured in Scripture. It's telling that the first set of brothers in the Bible is Cain and Abel, where one killed the other. Later in the book of Genesis, of course, there is another group of brothers, one being found in Jacob and Esau, who again warred against one another. And then finally, there was Joseph with his 11 brothers. And in that family, because of their jealousy of Joseph, they put him in a pit and sold him into slavery. Over and over again throughout the Bible, there is strife within families, strife amongst brothers. The tribes warred together. The north and south warred against one another. Even Aaron and Miriam came against Moses at one point. David's brothers appeared to have been jealous of him. And even during the life of Christ, who of course lived a perfect and holy life, his own brothers did not believe him. It seems that there was a disunity between even Jesus and his brothers. And today, of course, we live in a time where we watch images of planes flying into buildings, cars driving angrily into crowds, and bullets piercing human flesh. We know exactly what disunity looks like. And so when the psalmist sings and says, look, when it comes to God's people, When there is unity amongst God's people, it is beautiful and it ought to be fought for. So here the pilgrims sing about this unity. Now it's not hard to imagine why they put this song in the cluster of Psalms of Ascents. Because even if this song was originally about family connections, literal brothers, even if somehow that was its only application, the group of pilgrims gathered together on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, worshiping God, as they looked around at all of these different tribes and all of these different people from 
all over the world who were Jewish by nature coming together to worship the God of Israel, they would be able to, in a fresh way, celebrate the unity that God had given to his people. And that actually is the first thing that I want to point out to you from this psalm. Number one, that unity comes from God. Number one, that unity comes from God. The phrases that indicate that in the passage are phrases like, it's like the precious oil running down on the beard and running down on the collar of his robes. And then it's likened, secondly, to the dew of Hermon, which falls down onto the mountains of Zion. And of course, spoken more plainly, it says at the end of verse 3, the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. In other words, unity comes down from the Father. Unity falls down from God. Unity is something that God himself has commanded, that God himself has built. Unity comes from above, from God. He must be the one to bring it because man cannot. In fact, man unified outside of God is a scary proposition. But when we are unified in God and because of God, under the authorship of God, a beautiful thing unfolds. And so we must look to God for unity. It comes from him. Now, we teach from time to time about the millennial reign of Christ. Some of the prophecies concerning that thousand-year rule of Christ indicate that the lion and the lamb will lie down together, that there will be peace in the animal kingdom. Personally, I think that the magic of the millennial reign of Christ will not so much be the lion and the lamb lying down together, although that will be beautiful and shocking at our first instance or or witness of it, but the real magic will be all people living in harmony with one another. This is something that only God is able to produce. And of course, we as Christians understand that Christ is the source of the unity that God, that God gives. You know, his great plan for the fullness of time has been uniting all things in him. Ephesians 1 verse 10. Now, if we consider this unity that God gives, I think we can consider it in three distinct areas. We would consider, first of all, that God produces a unity between man and himself or humankind and himself. The war is over. The enmity is gone. Righteousness is given. And there's then peace that believers have with God. Secondly, There is also unity that we are to have with others. This is probably the unity that is most obvious to us, especially in this psalm. But let's pause to consider that this is a deep theological desire of God from the foundation of the world. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15 to 16, that one of the great desires of God, one of the great plans of God, not plan B in the slightest, but his original intention is that he might create in himself 
one new man in place of the two. In other words, Jew and Gentile being set aside so that God can create a new man called the church, reconciled together, that he might reconcile us both to God, he says, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So God has designed unity with himself for man, unity with others in the body of Christ, but also a unity within the self. You see, when God recreates you and gives you a new nature, you now have a battle that will take place in your heart. There's a battle between the new nature that God has given to you and the old body of sin, the flesh that is yours and has tasted sin. This is why we are told over and over again to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. As one author said, every man is a civil war. And what God is trying to do is to produce a unity within your own life and within your own heart. So the desire of God, unity within, with himself, and then mostly in this song, with others. You know, the reality is that the moment you become a Christian is the moment you become a member of the church. Even those believers who make a decision to never engage with a local church, who make one excuse or another and are rarely, if ever, there and part of the the local congregation, even believers like that are, whether they like it or not, part of the body of Christ, part of the church. It's not something that is optional. It just happens to you. The Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ, and you become a member of it. And so the church is not something that is for simply the gregarious or the extroverted, but for everyone in Christ Jesus. And when we gather together as the church, whether you like it or not, others will be present. And so first, what we consider in this song is that unity comes from, it is given and provided by God himself. Number two, unity is both healthy and enjoyable. Unity is both healthy and enjoyable. Notice how he says it there in verse one, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, when it describes unity in that way, good and pleasant, a way you could say that is healthy, you know, good and enjoyable, pleasant. He'll describe the goodness and the pleasantness of unity with brothers with precious oil and refreshing dew. Now, the thing is, we as human beings always enjoy and like pleasant things. And we will always, or at least often, acknowledge good things. You know, we might say broccoli is good and ice cream is pleasant. But an example of good and pleasant might be a delicious and perfectly ripe, fresh summer fruit. You know, something that is both pleasant, enjoyable, a wonderful experience, but also 
is nutritious, is good for you. And unity amongst brothers is not only good, like flossing or sit-ups or certain taxes, and it's not only pleasant, like a fine meal or a sunny day, but it's both combined. And so unity is good and pleasant. You might want to think about this in the sphere of your own relationships, Think about the people that are very significant in your everyday experience in life. Perhaps your wife, your husband, perhaps children if you have them, perhaps close friends or family members, perhaps co-workers, perhaps elders within the church. You know, as you consider these different people, consider how beautiful it is when you are living in harmony, in unity with them. So unity is healthy and unity is enjoyable. Number three, unity enables us to dispense with uniformity. Notice what they're singing about. They say, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, these brothers are represented by this pilgrim with by tribes who are ascending to Jerusalem in unity, but not in uniformity. You know, when they came together, actually, for unified worship, it helped them realize how non-uniform they really were. We so easily forget that when Israel, singular, came to worship God, they were comprised of many different tribes and clans and geographies and families and ages and genders And so when they all came together, there was an incredible diversity that was exhibited in that unified worship of the Lord. And in Jerusalem, they were probably more so reminded of those differences as they were reminded of that unity. You can imagine someone from the tribe of Benjamin, a very small little tribe, encompassed by the tribe of Judah up in the mountain territory, talking with someone or in fellowship with someone from the massive tribe of Manasseh and just trying to get their head around the sheer size of this tribe that would take days to get across. Or you can imagine someone from Asher You know, they're living on the coast in a fishing industry and in the cool, you know, coastal plains in fellowship with someone from the mountainous Judean territory. And all of these believers, those different geographies and places and tribes, it would create and foster these differences in the ways that that they operated and behaved. But they would realize how unified they were. It's when believers are unified that beauty results. And so this unity enables us to dispense with a feeling that we must be uniform. You know, Jesus called us to go into all of the nations and to make disciples. And whatever nation you're in was part of Jesus' mission, Jesus' target. It more than likely, unless you're an Israelite, did not originate with your nation, with your language, with your culture, with your custom. But the gospel has reached into into your life and world and nation. 
It says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, that there is a mystery of godliness that we confess, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. The church, centered around the gospel and the word of God, will take various shapes throughout the nations. We are not uniform, but we are unified. We have a basic set of doctrines that make us Christian, but that does not mean that we are have a uniformity of the way that we see the world, the way that we operate, the way that we function. You might think about this in your own life, within your own nation or your own state or within your own community, there are various styles and looks and functions and, and mission statements of various local churches. And even within your own town, you're going to see that there is not a uniformity within all the churches. And even within your own fellowship, there's going to be a varied nature of personalities and callings and genders and life stages. So what is not being encouraged here is uniformity, but what is being encouraged is unity. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 to 6, that there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. So Jesus is into unity, but not uniformity. Now, number four, unity comes when I change my view of you. What the psalm sings about, it gives an example, too, actually, of what unity is like. In the first example, you have oil running down the beard of Aaron. I I doubt that any of us, at first glance, when we thought to ourselves, yeah, unity is beautiful, and here's what it's like. It's like the oil running down the beard of Aaron. That's probably not for us in our modern context, the way that we would describe unity. But this is an example from the ordination of the priests. When they would ordain new priests, they had a special anointing oil that they would pour out upon these priests. And so when oil was flowing down the beard of Aaron and down onto the collar of his robes, it meant or was a symbol that the priesthood was expanding. And so when you had more priests with more oil flowing through the beard and onto their collar, then you knew that the priesthood was in full swing, operating strongly. Not only that, but he says, secondly, that it's like the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is another phrase for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, especially during two of the three pilgrim feasts that Israel would enjoy up on that mountaintop, Jerusalem was a very dry place. Mount Hermon, on the other hand, was not. Mount Hermon is a mountain that's about 9,000 feet tall, uh, now in the region of Lebanon and Syria. But during the time of Israel, it was their northernmost mountain. 
And it was a place and is a place that perpetually, year-round, there's snow and dew and general moisture that creates a lush environment in that mountaintop region. The dew is thick, uh, the snow melts, and the moisture refreshes and brings life. And if you were up on Mount Jerusalem in that dry and arid climate and someone said to you, hey, how would you like to enjoy for a moment the dew of Hermon? You'd say, yes, absolutely. And refreshment would come into your life. This dew here is a picture of moisture and growth in an otherwise dry place. Now, I said here that unity comes when I change my view of you. And I want to explain that by thinking about both of these images, both of these pictures. First of all, when I begin to think of you as a priest in my life, then we become more unified. You know, the Bible teaches in the New Testament that we in the church are built up as a holy and royal priesthood. The Bible teaches that we, are be, we have been given gifts of the Holy Spirit with which to minister and to serve one another. The Bible tells us that we are called to love one another. And so your walk, your life, your ministry, your sanctification is important to the overall church, which means that it's important to me personally because it impacts all of us. This is why sin is so damaging in the body of Christ. When a person persists in secret, rebellion, unconfessed sin, and yet is inside the body of Christ, it's like they've pulled the emergency brake on the car, but the car is trying to still lurch forward. You're driving with the emergency brake. You're not everything that you could be because there is sin in the camp that is slowing the church down. And when I begin to see you as important to my own spiritual health and life and vitality, when I begin to see that your walk is important to me, and when I begin to see that you have perspectives and thoughts and visions and dreams that beautifully intersect with my life and impact me for the better, then unity develops. And when I look at you And I have an expectation that even when you are in the dry places of life, and it seems to me like there's not much life, there's not much happening, but when I have a perspective and a view and a thought that the dew of God, the moisture of God could come upon your life and refresh you and refresh me and bring life abundant into you, then we are brought into a deeper place of unity. Unity comes when I change my view of you. Too often we look around at other believers and we say, I don't need you, you're no priest for me, and I have no hope for you, you'll never grow. We must dispense of that attitude if unity is going to be able to gain traction in our lives. Then finally, and fifthly, unity leads to life. Unity leads to life. It says there in verse 2 that it's like the oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, like the dew of Hermon. And 
it's the place where God has commanded the blessing life forevermore. You know, again, the oil on the head running down on the beard of Aaron, that would indicate Israel at full health and strength. And when Israel was healthy, their worship was healthy. And when their worship was healthy, Israel was healthy. And when Israel was healthy, their worship was healthy. It was a cyclical thing. Unity leads to worship. And worship leads to unity. And that worship and that unity combined leads to the effectiveness of God's people. I don't know of any church that's been able to really get anything done for the cause of Christ without a decent measure of unity amongst their leadership and amongst their membership. And both of these things, unity leading to worship and worship leading to more unity, leads to effectiveness in the body of Christ. He also says that it's like the dew of Hermon up on Mount Zion. This speaks of life. And he calls it life forevermore there at the end of verse 3. It's like a little taste of heaven is what we're tasting when we taste unity. Eternity will be a place of beautiful community before God. So unity leads to life. And discord, we would assume then, leads to death. If we think about this song in another way, we might want to ask the question, what are enemies of unity? Well, one enemy of unity would be that I see you as dispensable. In other words, a wrong view of you would break our harmony together. Another enemy of unity would be, again, as we mentioned earlier, uniformity. When I attempt to put you in some kind of box. Another enemy of unity would be pride. A view that says, I don't need you. I don't have a need for you. And another enemy of unity would be thinking that Unity is something that can be man-made, but we have to have something higher to unite around lest our unity become merely another tower of Babel that God must strike down. And so unity is a beautiful thing. It comes from God. It's healthy and enjoyable. It enables us to dispense with uniformity. It comes when I change my view of you and it leads beautifully to life. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.